Hi guys, welcome back to Suspects. I'm Katie. And I'm Hannah. And this is our podcast. And I don't really feel like doing the intro anymore, so Hannah and I decided that we're going to bail on it. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening at this point, this is our seventh episode. We are seven in, seven deep. So you know what's up, you know what we're talking about, you know what kind of podcast this is, and you know what you're in for. <laughs> I can't believe this is already episode seven. I know. I'm so happy. <laughs> like, I just want to keep going. <laughs> yeah, I just, I feel like we, part of me feels like we just started yesterday, and then another part of me feels like I've been doing this for 40 years, you know? I know, I know. That's exactly how I feel. I'm like, I'm so passionate about this. I feel like I've been doing this for so long, but then you look back and you're like, okay, seven deep, that's pretty good. But dang, I still pretty much just started. Like, we still have a yeah. lot more, like, stuff we can do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, Hannah, we missed you last week. I know that you weren't here, so welcome back. We missed you. We hope that you have been doing well. Yeah, I missed you guys. I've just been super busy, and I'm glad that Gabby could fill in for me. Yeah, definitely. Us too. Um, I had talked to her. I'm just kind of mad that, that I missed the conspiracy episode, but whatever. <laughs> hey, we'll have, you know we'll what? We'll have to do another one later. We can do that whenever. That was actually her idea because she was like, she's not like a big murder fan. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Like she does not like like no, murder cases. That. So she texted me and she was like, I don't really want to do a death. She was like, let's do a conspiracy. She was like, I know you're not doing themes, but let's do that. And I was like, okay, I'm down for that. <laughs> Props to Gabby because I love conspiracies. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them, so we have plenty. Of Just them. call me a millennial, you know? <laughs> right, right. <Woo-hoo. laughs> um, so, yeah, last week, guys, if you listened to our episodes, we did conspiracy theories. We talked about MLK and MK Ultra. It was a super laid back, different kind of episode, but it was fun. So, um, but we're definitely glad to have Hannah back. You know, that's my girl, my bestie. So, we are here, we are back, and we're going to go ahead and jump into Hannah's case first this week whenever she's ready. All right, y'all. So I was really interested when I started researching this case. Um, I just wanted to know more about crimes that have gone on in Florida because I feel like the famous ones are like, you know, Casey Lee Anthony. And is her name Casey Lee? No, it is not Casey Lee Anthony. Where the heck did I get Lee? It's Casey yeah, Anthony. I don't know. Yeah, Casey Anthony. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, and then, you know, Ted Bundy, of course, um, had his moment in Florida, and then he was executed here. Um, but other than that, it's like, even though I've lived in Florida for 23 years, I don't really know much about Florida crime. So... What did I do? I just Googled um, most famous Florida true crime cases. Um, and I was going Love through that, that list. <laughs> yeah, I was going through the list, and I literally didn't recognize any single name. So I just picked one, and this story is insane. Like, I can't Ooh, believe I've never heard of this guy. Like, growing up in Florida, how do I not hear about one of Florida's most prolific serial killers? Yeah, that's um, crazy. I'm excited to hear about it. I wonder if I know who it is. Well, his name is Bobby Joe Long. Have you heard his name before? Uh, you know what, Hannah? Here's the thing. I feel like that's such a Middleburg name that I know somebody with that name. So I don't know <laughs> if it's because of that or if it's because of this case. But go ahead and tell me. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a good old um, Florida man story here. So 
All right. Bobby Joe Long, or Robert, was born on October 4th. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Bobby Joe Long was born on October 14th, 1953, in Canova, West Virginia. So he's not a born in Florida man, but he will become one. Um, but his parents <laughs> split. Yeah. His parents split when he was young, and so he and his mom moved to Florida, and that's where he spent. Um, definitely a majority of his childhood and younger years. Um, and then, of course, adult years, of course. But his formative years definitely weren't in West Virginia. They were in Florida. Um, but his, his childhood was definitely troubled. Like when his parents split, he didn't do well in school. Um, so that had to really affect him, especially going in, in school in like, you know, the 60s. I feel like failing a grade was definitely seen as more of an issue than it is now. Um, right. And then he also developed an odd complex with women at an early age um, because he had a weird relationship with his mom. She dressed in what he described as a very product, uh, provocative manner. Um, and he just really resented her for that. And then he resented her for how many men she would bring home. Like apparently she brought home several different men and um, for a young kid, that was really confusing um, for him. So he just had this weird, weird complex with women from a very early age. Um, but skipping forward a little bit, um, he met his wife, Cynthia, when they were middle schoolers, which, you know, if you didn't know anything about this show or what was going to happen to this dude, um, it's like, oh, cute, middle school sweethearts. No. Um <laughs> They met when he, yeah, they met when Bobby was 13, um, and then they married when he was 21 in 1974, and they quickly had two kids, uh, and then his wife, Cynthia, she said that after the kids were born, he started um, obviously being more stressed, because I feel like parenthood, it's just a stressful thing, like you're now responsible for raising two whole people, you know, so. Right, yeah, two humans. <laughs> Yeah, so he definitely was um, exhibiting more of, like, a stressed-out behavior, um, which is to be expected. But he was in a um, he was in a motorcycle accident. A car hit him when he was on his motorcycle, and he was hospitalized for quite a while. And his wife said that after that accident, he, um, he definitely started ex- exhibiting more violent behavior toward her. And he just became more aggressive with the kids. Like, he wasn't physical with the kids, but he was definitely more impatient. And definitely, um, if we were looking at it in today's standards, probably very verbally abusive towards the children. Um, Mm. But then she also said that his sexual behaviors also began to change. Like, he had a very strong sexual appetite. And um, one of the articles I read about him said that he likely – Obviously, if looked at it from today's perspective, would have been diagnosed with a um, sex addiction. Mm. But, but yeah, so his his whole behavior changed, which I mean, you know, a troublesome childhood coupled with a very severe car accident has the potential. Not saying that I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but right, right, there's definitely, definitely a lot of you know key factors here that we see a lot of times in you know, in, in murderers, like in their early years, there's some traumatic event, like, you know, I don't think like, like it like just, builds up kind of. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
so everything kind of took a turn after that car accident. That was kind of when everything went downhill for him uh, because Cynthia filed for divorce in 1980, which I mean, that has to be expected for him with starting to abuse her, but he moved right, in right. with one of his, yeah, he moved in with one of his female friends, Sharon Richards, who later said that while he was living with her, he raped her and attacked her many times. Um, yeah, but then that's when like his whole rape rape spree began and we'll talk about that more in in just a second so shortly after his divorce with his wife Sharon um, and when he attacked and raped his friend Sharon was when this 50 rape spree began Um, but in 1983 in the midst of that he was in jail for a short time for sending inappropriate sex infused um, letter and photographs to a 12 year old Florida a 12-year-old girl living in Florida, um, which oh. he also was living in Florida. Yeah, a 12-year-old oh gosh, girl. Great. Chris Hansen, where are you? Yeah. Um, and then he just, his rape spree continued after he got out of jail, of course. Um, so from like that 1980-ish to 1983 period, he committed 50 rapes. And his, man, I'll say his little... I don't know what word I'm looking for. His little, um, what word am I looking for? Oh my gosh, my brain. <laughs> his his little scheme for raping women was really terrifying. He would look for for sale signs in houses and would go in expecting to rape unexpecting women. Oh my gosh, what a what a weirdo! Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not saying this in a way to glorify him, but that's. I mean, that's kind of genius. Because who yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I'm saying, like, yeah, who's going to think to do that to, like, where people aren't expecting it like that? Like, most people just grab someone, you know? Yeah, especially, like, in the 80s, you know, when I feel like people weren't as aware of these terrible things. And I feel like these terrible things weren't happening as frequently um, before the 80s. I feel like there was, like, the serial killer spree in the 70s, 80s. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just, maybe we just don't know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, these, these poor women, they didn't even know to be terrified and lock their doors and make appointments and know who's coming. Um, and so he raped 50, 50 different times. It doesn't, I couldn't find if it was 50 different women or if it was 50 different times. So if he, if he raped one woman multiple times, like that's, I don't know if that's more heartbreaking. I mean, either way, it's just, it's devastating. If it's 50 women or if it's, you know, 25 yeah, either women way. Right, twice. Either way, it's right. disgusting and heartbreaking. Um, but anyway, so his his crimes began to escalate beyond that, which, you know, escalate beyond a serial rapist like that. Um, in the spring of 1984, when he committed his first murder, so he mm. picked up prostitute artist wick um and he was intending to just you know have sex with her and um fulfill his sexual appetite which how could it whatever yeah Mm -hmm. um but it spiraled out of control which is i feel like this is the story of every serial killer's first kill it's like everything kind of got out of their control yeah and he ended up strangling her 
So let me just give you a warning. Um, the way he kills these women gets more and more vile. Um, it, it's definitely an escalating crime here. So in May of 1984, he picked up hitchhiker Lana Long. And when he pulled out his knife, she screamed and started, you know, trying to get attention to herself and everything. So he drove farther up the road where he um, raped her and strangled her. So Mm -hmm. even though she fought back, he still, you know, attacked her. Yes. And um, when her body was found by police, she was found face down in the grass, in the dirt, and her legs were spread so far apart they measure, measured five feet between one foot and the other. Um, <sighs> so he just just left her there, all splayed out. No, oh. no concern. Um, poor Lana. I just, oh God, I can't imagine. Yeah, that's so oh. awful. Like how disrespectful. I mean, what you're doing is already disrespectful, but like just you know, like oh yeah. Um, okay, his next victim was, it, I couldn't find when this happened because every, listen, everything happened within a year and a half period. All mm. of, all of these poor women was in a year and a half. Um, so his next victim, Michelle Sims, he lured her to his car, um, where he beat her and raped her and then killed her by slashing her throat several Mm. times there were several lacerations to her throat um but the red fibers that were found with her body were also found with long's body and that's what let the police know that they were working with at this point a killer of two women they didn't know if he was quite a serial killer yet but they connected the first victim and the second victim with these red fibers um, gotcha. So, um, the next victim that was found was Elizabeth Loudenbach, and she was found 17 days after she was murdered, and she was too decomposed for them to figure out a cause of death. But she was she was fully clothed. And then also, what was different about her from the other victims, is and all the other victims, like this goes. Um, I, I, I'm sorry. No, no, no what's different from all the other victims before her is that she was not a prostitute, a drug user, or a stripper. So she was definitely an outlier in this, in this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Next was Chanel Williams and she was picked up in Tampa and he shot her twice in the neck, but she didn't go down without a fight. She fought him hard while he was Mm. leaving her. She fought back. Um, but tragically, he still shot her twice. And I feel like if he didn't have a gun, that girl might have got him. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was his last resort. The, yeah, it, I feel like that definitely had to be for him. Because everything's escalating so much for him as we're going mm-hmm. along here. Like, I mean, go from strangling to, like, throat slashing to, you know, obviously now shooting her. Um, and then... The story quickly goes over it, but I imagine it's because it followed the same um, the same MO and because Karen Dinsfried and Kimberly Hopps, they were also found killed. 
Um, and I don't have a ton of details about those women. And I'm assuming it's probably because either they were also found too decomposed to identify a cause of death or they were also strangled um, and left for dead. Good grief. Mm-hmm. This story just honestly makes me so sick to my stomach because it's just like, I mean, so many other serial killers, it's just like there's this long gap between their killings. But this guy, I mean, it's just boom, 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 boom. You know? Yeah, back to back to back to back, like no rest, no stop, nothing. Yeah. Um, to go. So this this next victim of his is super intriguing to me, and I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, but I'm going to go through his whole, you know, crime journal, and then we're going to come back to this next victim because I think – I think this was a turning point for him also. So in November of 1984, he captured Lisa McVeigh and he used her as a sex slave for over 24 <gasps> hours. Oh my God. And then, this poor girl. And then he let her go. What? Yes. A year and a half after he killed his first victim, he used her as a sex slave and then let her go. Oh, my gosh. He just told her to leave? He just let her go. Yeah, he just oh let her God. leave. Um, he then killed Virginia Johnson and Kim Swan, who were also killed um, in similar fashions by being lured to the car and killed in the car um, and after being raped by him. Um, but going back to Lisa McVeigh, I really think that this was probably his moment where he maybe subconsciously got sloppy because he wanted to be caught. Because on November 16th, 1984, her testimony led police to Bobby. And red fibers that were found at the different crime scenes matched the interior of his vehicle. So that was like his smoking gun. Um, yeah. So I, I just, I really feel like whether consciously or unconsciously, Lisa McVeigh was his, like, I'm done and I'm ready for you guys to catch me kind of thing. Yeah, his way out. Like, he's the way to be done, definitely. That's weird that he just let her go and then killed two other girls after that. Yeah, but what's crazy is that it was November 16th when he was caught, and I don't have a date for when he captured Lisa McVeigh, but within... At most, a 16-day period, he captured her for 24 hours and then also killed two women before he was captured, just in 16 yeah. days tops. He had a busy so he was, he was working fast. Like, this, his whole timeline is so fast. Um, but then after being convicted, his he was also tied to the death of Vicki Elliott, um, which is just, it's, it's a whole story um, with that. First, I'm going to tell you about um, his sentencing. Okay. So in April 1985, so just the spring after he was captured, he was convicted of first-degree murder in the Virginia Johnson case, which is, um, that was his, ooh, now I lost it. Sorry, <laughs> I, I lost my place. I'm sorry, I'm making you do some. Okay, Virginia Johnson was his, next to last victim. So he, she was um, one of the November murders. 
Okay. Um, and he was sentenced. He was sentenced to death for that one. Mm-hmm. And then later that year, so later in 1985, he pled guilty to eight murders in Hillsborough County, um, and. What's her name? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, Katie. No, you're totally good. I totally get it. There was another call. Oh my gosh, why didn't I write this on my notes? Okay, Artist Wick. Okay, okay. So Artist Wick is the first girl he killed, right? Wick was the first victim. Yes. Okay. Um. Okay, I'm gonna back up. So later in 1985, he was he pled guilty to eight counts of murder in Hillsbury County, but Wick, um, artist Wick, that the first victim, her body wasn't found like her body wasn't actually found until after his arrest, and because Long Bobby never um, pled guilty to murdering her. He's never formally been charged for her murder. Oh my gosh. This poor girl has no justice. Like it's definitely tied to him, but it's because of the timeline of things. Um he because he confessed and then he went on to stand other trials. Um he just never specifically confessed to her death, but police have said that he definitely um was the killer. Um, But still, like, that girl, her case technically, I believe, still says unsolved. Um, But I feel like her family probably has peace knowing that it just wasn't formally carried out against him. Um, I don't know. That's just, that's a tough situation. Yeah, yeah, super tough. But at least they know who did it, I guess, in a sense. But... I'm yeah. sure they would still like to see the conviction. That sucks. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Um, but then he was, hand- for, for his crimes, he was handed more than two dozen life imprisonment sentences. Um, so he's already got the sentence to death for Virginia Johnson. Then the eight counts of murder in Hillsborough County, he's been handed two life sentences. And then, or two dozen, I'm sorry, not two. So then after that, in the summer of 1986, so the following year, um, he was sentenced to death by electrocution for the murder of Michelle Sims, who was um, the girl who had her, the one who he slashed her throat. So he was sentenced Mm -hmm. to death by electrocution for her death. Um, But the sick thing about all this is even counting Artiswick, who he never was formally charged for, he also alluded to even more victims in his interviews with police. Oh, my gosh. That's just something that we'll never know. So how many other women, you know, who were, who fit his mode? But even, even that one girl who was an outlier, like how many deaths in Florida that are unsolved could be tied to him? Like that, right? And in, in that time period, it just makes that's my head crazy. Spin. But what year did thing, he? What year was he? I'm sorry. What year was he um, in the electric chair? And again, I'm sorry. Well, he was sentenced to death by electrocution in 1986. It wasn't carried out just yet. 
Um, oh, okay. Because, yeah. And, and now, like, we'll never, I mean, maybe, who knows what science will do? I don't, I don't know. Science is something that I'm not smart about at all. Um, so maybe one day there will be a way to prove it. But um, he was executed by lethal injection on May 23rd, 2019. So really not long ago at all. Um, but something that's like kind of heartbreaking, but kind of at the same time, like it gives me a really strong sense of justice was that um, McVeigh, that girl, um, Lisa McVeigh, that he uses a sex slave for 24 hours, who was the one who brought him to justice. Um, she sat in the front row during his execution and she said, I wanted to be the first person he saw. Um, mm. Like, I guess, I guess when he was being executed, he, she wanted to be the first person that he noticed in the room. So yeah, that's the story of, um, of old Bobby Joe Long. Bobby Joe Long. I feel like it sounds kind of familiar, but I definitely didn't remember all those details. But that that's crazy, bro. He just like had a wife and kids and got an accident and then and then Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean I don't mean to be insensitive with that. It's just it was just so fast. Yeah, I know. Literally you said it in like a year and a half he did all that, right? Yeah. Murders. I mean, I mean I know the rapes were for a couple of years, but the murders were for like a year and a half. Yeah, it was, um, it was spring of 1984. I don't have a specific date written down, but spring of 1984 to November of 1984. So, yeah, wow. That's, whoa, no, no, no. My math is all wrong. It it was literally one year, spring of 1984 to November of 1984. I've been wrong this whole time. He literally did all that in like six months. Oh my gosh! So whoa, yeah, six months. What a psycho, bro! Like literally, you just spazzed out out of nowhere, and you would have to be doing like one a week, like or more than that. What? That's insane. That's literally so insane. And he just died in 2019. You said May of 2019. Yep. May 23rd, 2019. Bobby Joe Brown or whatever. Pretty sure that's the same day I got dumped. <laughs> God dang it, Hannah. Why would you say that? Well, I don't know. That was, just, um, that was that, terrible. Uh, yeah. That's so funny. That's the same day I got dumped. You I guys both had my, a piece of you die that day. I was just thinking in my mind. I was like, why does that date stick out in my mind? But actually, no, that's not the day I got dumped. That's something else. I think it might have been the last day of the <laughs> I don't know. I got dumped way before then. That's so funny. What am I not talking about? Dumped. Not that you got dumped, but that it was possibly the same day. Yeah. It's not funny that you got dumped. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's funny now. Yeah, I know. I feel you. I look back at all my last relationships, like when I was so heartbroken and sad and crying, and I just thought I'd never get over it. And then I look back like a year or two later, and I'm like, I can imagine what that would have been like when I kept going. Like, yeah, I mean, he's good to me. It's just, it's just crazy now because like his life, he just seems happy now, and I don't think he was with me. And that's fine. Oh my gosh, what am I talking about? Like, <laughs> this is a crime show. 
<laughs> um, it's also a therapy show. Actually, now here we go. Okay, welcome to Katie's therapy session. <laughs> we should start a second podcast where we just uh, dissect each other's lives with our, you know, non psychology um, backgrounds. That was not a good thing. Right. I'm right. Obviously, not an English major either. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hannah tells me what I should do, and I tell her what she should do from non-professional perspectives. <laughs> Tune in. Tune in every day, Sunday, or every Sunday at 7 p.m. Thank you. <laughs> Two blonde, not psychiatrists. Right, right. I'm sure people would love to listen to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'd have to advertise, like, five drinks in. Literally. We'll get a pack of white claws and split it, and we'll be like, "All right, guys, here we go. We're, we're just gonna cry and drink white claws and eat Cheetos for the next two hours." Yeah. Cheetos. I haven't had any of those in so long. Yeah. I know. Um. Well, I'll go ahead and get into my case. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it is definitely so crazy. Like I had already heard about this before, but I was listening to my favorite murder, and I don't remember which one of them covered it. It might have been. Georgia um but she talked about it and as soon as as she was talking about it I I'm the kind of person that like as I'm listening to something or watching something I have to go and look it up like as they're talking about it because I'm like there's no way that this is real like there's no way that this happened the way that they're saying it did so I looked it up and it went down exactly how she said it did and it is crazy so have you ever heard of Lori Dan Hannah no I have not heard that name Oh, I mean, there's a possibility right. I've heard the name, but I suck at names, so. No, I feel you. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Yeah, no, it's definitely crazy. So um, if you do remember it, tell me. But if not, um, buckle up, sister. <laughs> I feel like either way, so, I'm going to buckle up. My memory is terrible. Right. No, I mean, even, like, the cool thing is, is even if you've heard of something before, you definitely don't remember all the details. So it's like, educate me. Please. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> And different perspectives. Like, I love it. Yeah, different people cover things differently. I like that, too. So we'll go ahead and jump right into it. Let me scroll up. I'm on my laptop here because I'm kind of a nerd now, and I do all my notes on my laptop. So I just pull it up like a little professional. (laughs) Love it. Okay, so Lori Dan was born in Chicago, and she grew up in Glencoe, which is a north suburb of Chicago. And she was the daughter of an accountant, Norman Wasserman, and I probably did not say that correctly, and his wife, Edith Joy. So those who know Lori describe her as really shy and kind of withdrawn. She graduates high school in Illinois in 1975, and although she didn't really have the greatest grades in high school, she was, a ta- uh, she was able to attend Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. When her grades improved, she transferred to the University of Arizona, and she had the goal of becoming a teacher. She began dating a pre-med student, which is like, go ahead, Lori, like, go off this, I see you. And the relationship (laughs) soon became serious. (laughs) You know, literally, as soon as I read that, I was like, go off, girl, pre-med, that was my dream when I was 15. I was going to date a pre-med high schooler. I was going to marry an NFL player. I knew it was going to happen. Oh, yeah, we were going to go to UF and uh, hang around the pre-law, pre-med, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally, that, I, what a different reality. Like, <laughs> for real. <laughs> um, so she starts dating this pre-med student, and the relationship soon becomes super serious, and she starts becoming possessive and demanding over her boyfriend. 
And in the summer of 1977, she attends the University University of Wisconsin in Madison, taking a course in home economics. In 1980, she got like a home ec degree. She just was like taking a class there, basically, like oh my randomly. God. I would, like she wants to be a teacher. <laughs> but one of my friends' um, moms, her degree is in home economics. So like literally, she has she looks at us sometimes, and when we compliment her food, she's like, "I literally have a college degree in it." So shut your mouth. And um, <laughs> I'm I'm impressed and I'm jealous. But yeah, yeah sorry. No, I, I was no, 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 you're fine. No, I wish I could cook like that. When I get rich enough, I'm going to hire a chef. <laughs> I'll do it. Tie me up. Literally, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in 1980, Lori and her boyfriend's relationship starts falling apart, so she moves back to her parents' house. She then transfers to the Northwestern University to complete her degree, but she drops out of all of her classes and never graduates. So she meets a guy named Russell Dan, who was an executive in an insurance broker firm in September of 1982, and they actually get married. But the marriage quickly sours as Russell's family noted signs of obsessive compulsive disorder with Lori and strange behavior, including stuff like, listen to this, (laughs) leaving trash around the house. (laughs) Why is she just leaving trash around the house for no reason, like on the floors, on the couch, on the countertops, everywhere? Okay, but, like, that was all of us in, like, middle school and high school. Okay, but I think there's a difference in a 16- and 15-year-old leaving some wrappers on their floor and this girl, like, literally having, like, banana peels and, like, old food okay, on the right. counter. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't know what I'm talking about. Just mute, just mute me for the rest of the night. I don't know what I'm saying. If, you're, if your mom came in your room when you were 16, if Susie walked in that room and saw seven-day-old turkey and mashed potatoes all over the floor, she would have had it. She would have had you by your neck. (laughs) She would have just, like, full-on just collapsed right there. She would have literally fell out against the door. (laughs) (laughs) For real. Um, So, yeah, so leaving trash around the house. So after that, she starts to see a psychiatrist for a short period of time who identified her childhood and upbringing as a cause of her problems. Lori and Dan, Lori and Dan, his name's Russell, because their last name is Dan, so I just keep calling him Dan. Lori and Russell separate in October of 1985, and the divorce negotiations were pretty bitter. Lori was claiming that Russell was abusive towards her, and in the following months, the police were called to investigate various incidents, including several harassing phone calls made to Russell and his family from Lori. In April 1986, Lori accuses Russell of breaking into and vandalizing her parents' house where she was living. Shortly after, she purchases a Smith & Wesson, a 357 Magnum, telling the salesman that she needed it for self-defense. The police were pretty concerned about her gun ownership and unsuccessfully tried to persuade Lori and her family that she should give up the gun. And, like, at this point, as a parent, this is where I'm breaking in, right? If you already know your daughter's got some stuff going on, if you give me that gun or you got to go. Like, I'm not playing that. You're not going to stay here. I'm not having nothing going on like that, you know? Oh, 100%. Like, you take her somewhere, get her the help she needs to be. Like, I understand mental issues. Like, I'm not downplaying that at all. But you 
take that. Like, and she's got to go somewhere to get help because that, that's just, that's danger walking. I mean, yeah. And like, not even just to everyone else, but to her too. My Right. Yeah. There is no way that would fly. Yeah, not at all. So in August 1986, she contacts her ex-boyfriend, who was by then a resident at a hospital, and she claimed to have had his child. When he refused to believe her, Lori calls the hospital where he works and claimed that he had raped her in the emergency room. Oh, my gosh. I know. When I read that, I almost fell out. Wow. In September, yeah, yeah, that's pretty extreme. Like, yeah, in, I mean, in, in, I don't even yeah, know what yeah. to say about that. Right. In September 1986, Russell reports that he had been stabbed while he was sleeping with an ice pick. He accused Lori of the crime, although he had not actually seen who it was. The police decide not to press charges against Lori based on a medical report, which suggests that the injury might have been self-inflicted, as well as Russell's abrasive attitude towards the police and his failed polygraph test. Russell and his family continued to receive the, what is wrong with me? Russell and his family had continued to receive harassing hang-up phone calls, and Lori was arrested for calls made to Russell's sisters. The charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. Just before their divorce is finalized in April 1987, Lori accuses Russell of raping her. There were no physical signs supporting Lori's claim, although she had passed two polygraph tests. In May 1987, Lori accuses Russell of placing a combustible device in her home. No charges were filed against Russell for either alleged event. Lori's parents believed her claims and supported and defended her throughout the entire situation. By this time, Lori was being treated by another psychiatrist for obsessive-compulsive disorder and a chemical imbalance. The psychiatrist told police that he did not think Lori was suicidal or homicidal. But it's like, come on, come on, psychiatrist. Like, you're not doing your job at this point because I'm sorry, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not professionally trained. But if she's already calling and harassing people and making stuff up, trying to get people fired, like, doing all this weird, like, behind-the-scenes crap. Like, what are you doing? You just think she's sane and, like, she's just, you know, trying to stir up the pot for a little fun? No. Some, she's – what? Yeah, I definitely think she's headed for something much more severe. Her behavior is escalating. Like, I'm not – Yes. I'm not a psych major, but I've read enough true crime to know that. Exactly. You're escalating, and then because your parents are standing behind you throughout everything or every choice that you're making, it's just making it worse. You're like, oh, okay, okay, I got this. Stand behind me, Mom and Dad. So Lori works as a babysitter, dude. A babysitter. When I read this, I was like, how? How did she – how do you – what? Okay, so she works as a babysitter. And some employers were actually pretty happy with the care that she provides for their kids. And others make complaints to the police about damage to their furniture and the theft of food and clothes from their house. Despite the complaints, no charges were ever pressed. Dan's father, I'm sorry, Lori's father did pay for damages in one of the cases. In the summer of 1987, Lori sublets a university apartment in Evingston, Illinois. 
Once again, her strange behavior was started to be noted, including riding up and down in elevators for hours, wearing rubber gloves to touch metal, and leaving meat to rot in sofa cushions. She took no classes at the university. Leaving meat to rot in sofa cushions? Could you imagine that smell? <laughs> In the fall of 1987, Hannah, you're still here, right? Hello? Holy crap. I'm, I was muted. I'm so sorry. No, yeah, no, I'm no. Here. You're fine. I'm just making sure because my phone was ma like acting like I didn't have a signal, so I'm just making sure. No, you're fine. I, it's fine that you're muted. Sorry. I did that for yours, too. I was, no, you're fine. <laughs> I was popping my nightly pills, and I didn't want y'all to hear my pills rattling. <laughs> yeah. I know. You're totally fine. <laughs> I'm such a uh, grandma. <laughs> it's okay. I'm surprised that I'm not tired yet. So in the fall of 1987, Lori claims that she had received threatening letters from Russell and that he had sexually assaulted her in a parking lot. The police did not believe her. A few weeks later, she purchases a 32 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. With her conditions deteriorating, Lori and her family sought specialized help. In November 1987, she moved to Madison, Wisconsin to live in a student residence while being observed by a psychiatrist who specialized in OCD. She had already begun taking a drug for her, I'm sorry, let me reread that. She had already began taking medication for the OCD and her new psychiatrist increases her dosage, adding lithium carbonate to reduce her mood swings and initiating behavioral therapy to work on her phobias and ritualistic behaviors. Despite the intervention, her... pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> lithium carbonate to oh reduce God. her mood okay. swings. <laughs> okay, continue. This psychiatrist just seems like a genius to me. Like, I don't know. Like, he just yeah, seems... Just a little bit of a quack. Just yeah, a little, a little bit of a quack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <so> my <laughs> gosh. Do you remember when I used to do that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I had flashbacks straight to, like, middle school just now. Oh, my gosh, dude. So, side note real quick before we jump back into this. My boss... Um, like he, his dad was in town, like either this week or last week, I don't remember. But he did that, like he was doing that Donald Duck thing to the mm -hmm. baby that I nanny, and I literally like had a flashback, and I literally told him I was like, I used to do that all the time, and he was like, No way, and I was like, No, I did. Like I swear I did. <laughs> yeah, here's here's proof, dad of the kid, babe, Katie, right. <laughs> Katie did it. Um, Mr. Boss, I'm right. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Wow, that was so, that took me back, Katie. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, despite the intervention, Lori's strange behavior continues, including her elevator rides up and down for long, right, for long periods, um, changing channel, tel, what the frick, changing TV channels repetitively, repetitively. Bro, I swear, I don't know what is wrong with my tongue right now. It's okay. <sighs> Changing, right. Changing TV channels repetitively in an obsession with good and bad numbers. There were also concerns about whether or not she was a at this time. 
So Lori, the next thing she does, the you know, the thing that nobody, she keeps going to the psychiatrist, but and they can think to do that for her, but they can't stop her from purchasing guns for some reason. I, I don't really know, but she purchases a 22 semi-automatic Beretta at the end of December 1987. In March 1988, she stops attending her appointments with a psychiatrist and behavior therapist. About okay, so here's where we're about to um, we're about to pop into it in just two minutes is where stuff's about to literally pop off. Oh gosh. So, yep. Yeah. So at about the same time that she stopped seeing her psychiatrist and her behavior therapist, she starts to steal books from the library on poison. She diluted arsenic and other chemicals from a lab. She shoplifts clothes and wigs to disguise herself and was actually arrested for theft on one of the occasions. Both her psychiatrist hmm. and her father try to persuade her to enter the hospital as an inpatient, but she refuses. Dan, Dan, Lori continues to make numerous hang-up phone calls to her former in-laws and babysitting clients even. Eventually, the calls escalate to death threats. An ex-boyfriend and his wife also received dozens of threatening calls. In May 1988, a letter later have com- later confirmed to have been sent by Lori was sent to the hospital administration where her ex-boyfriend then worked, again accusing him of sexual assault. Since the, since the phone calls were across state lines, the FBI becomes involved, and a federal indictment against Lori was prepared. However, the ex-boyfriend, fearful of publicity and concerned about Lori getting bail and attempting to fulfill her threats against him, he decides to wait until other charges were filed in Illinois. In May 1988, a janitor found her lying in the fetal position inside a garbage bag in a trash room. What? Yes. Literally finds her laying in a fetal bag inside of a garbage bag in the trash room. Oh, my God. Oh my gosh. Mhm. Mhm. So why is she trying not to get getting book. help? Yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. It's bad. Yeah, it's really bad. So after this janitor finds her laying in the fetal position, this creates a search of her room and is actually the reason for her departure back to Glencoe. So right here is like I said, where stuff's about to really get popping. So during the days before May 20th, 1988, Lori prepares rice cereal snacks and juice boxes poisoned with the diluted arsenic that she had stolen in Madison. She mails them to a former acquaintance, ex-babysitting client, her psychiatrist, her ex-husband, and others. In the early morning of May 20th, she personally delivers snacks and juice samples to acquaintances and families for whom she had babysat, some of who who had not seen her for years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so at this point, she's just mad. You know what I'm saying? Like, she lost it completely already. And it's like, for me, it's like, this is my biggest question. As parents, how are you? Your daughter's living with you. What? Why are you not paying better attention to every movement? If she's seeing a psychiatrist, you're already trying to get her to check herself into a hospital. Like, where? where's the authority and the responsibility over your child, even though she is a woman, but she needs you? 
Yeah, I mean, as much as she is an adult, like, the behavior she's exhibited kind of communicates that she's not capable of caring for herself. Exactly. Dude, I'm telling you right now, if I got to the point where I mentally was doing, well, I would hope that I would never do stuff like this, but I'm saying, like, got to the point where mentally I just couldn't take care of myself or make decisions for myself. There are enough people in your life. Yeah. Right. That's what I'm saying. I 100% would want, like, my mom or my dad or my grandparents or even you to come grab me and do whatever needs to be done, you know? Yeah. Terrible. Um. So other snacks were delivered to the Alpha K Omega Psi Upsilon and Kappa Sigma. Sigma. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not a I'm not a frat girl, or I don't know what these are. Fraternity. Three Yeah. <laughs> um, so she delivers snacks to there those fraternity houses <laughs> and <laughs> LeBron Hall at Northwestern University in Evanston. Notes were attached to some of these snacks. The drinks were often leaking and the squares unpleasant tasting, so a few were actually consumed. So about 9 a.m. on the 20th, Lori arrived at the home of the Rush family, who were former babysitting clients, who were former babysitting clients of hers in Illinois, to pick up their two children. The family. A little day out before they left. Oh, Wait, taking the hold on, you, you've cut in and out like a bunch. So you, I heard the part where you said the Illinois family. Okay, what was the last full thing that you heard? That she arrived at the house of a family that were her babysitting clients in Illinois. Okay, um, so at about 9 a.m. on the 20th, Lori arrives at the home of the Rush family, who were former babysitting clients of hers in Illinois, to pick up their youngest two children. The family had actually just told Lori that they were recently moving away, so she's just picking the kids up for, you know, some sort of little fun outing before they move away. Gosh. So instead of taking the children, yeah, yeah, th- yeah this is this is bad. Instead of taking the children on the promised outing, she took them to Regina Elementary School in Highland Park, Illinois, where she had believed at that time that both of her former sister-in-law's two sons were enrolled. Um, But actually, only one of them was at that time, not both of them. So she leaves the two children in the car. She goes inside the school, and she tries to detonate a firebomb in one of the school's hallways. After she leaves, the small fire she set had actually been quickly discovered by the students and pretty quickly extinguished by a teacher. She then drives to a local daycare um, attended by her ex-sister-in-law's daughter and tried to enter the building with a plastic can of gasoline, but obviously was stopped pretty quickly by the staff. Thank goodness for that. Right. So, like, you can tell she's not in the right mind. Like, she's not thinking anything through, you know. She's just like, oh, this is my plan. I'm going to do this. And people are stopping her. So, it's like, you're, this isn't an evolved plan is my point. Yeah. So, to here. So, after she leaves the daycare, Lori drives the two kids back to their house, and she offers them some arsenic poisoned milk. But the boys instantly spit it out because it tastes weird, obviously. 
And then once at their home, she takes them downstairs and uses gasoline to set fires to the house, trapping the mother and the two children in the basement. They oh managed my to escape. Gosh. Yeah, they managed to escape though. They do manage to escape. Thank goodness. Good grief. Yes. So then she drives three and a half blocks to the Hubbard Woods Elementary School with three handguns in her possession. None of the, the three that none of nobody stopped her from buying. She wanders into a second grade classroom for a short while and then she just walks out. She finds a boy in the corridor. She pushes him into the boy's washroom and shoots him with a 22 semi-automatic Beretta pistol. Her Smith and no. Wesson, three, yeah, she does. Her Smith and Wesson 357 Magnum revolver jams when she tries to fire it at two other boys, and she threw it into the trash along with the spare ammo. So the boys run out of the washroom and raise the alarm. Lori then re-enters the second grade classroom where the students are working in groups on a bicycle safety test. She orders all of the children into the corner of the room. The teacher refuses and attempts to disarm Lori, uh, managing to unload the Beretta in the struggle. Lori pulls out her 32 Smith & Wesson from the waistband of her shorts and aims it at several groups of students. Several groups of students. She thought, uh, she shot five children killing eight-year-old Nick Corwin and wounding two girls and two boys before fleeing in her car. No. Yeah, so just straight up pulls up on an elementary school and just so random sad. Yeah, it's terrible. Just little eight-year-old boy lost his life. Yep, terrible. So Lori was actually restricted from leaving the area by the car because the roads were closed for a funeral at the time. She decides to drive her car backwards down the nearby street, but the road dead ends into a private driveway. So what she does is she abandons her car, she removes her blood-stained shorts, and ties a blue garbage bag around her waist. With her two remaining guns, she makes her way through the woods and comes upon the house of the Andrew family. Lori enters the house and meets a mother and her 20-year-old son who were in the kitchen. She claimed that she had been raped and shot the rapist in the struggle. And, like, see, this is what, like, confuses me because it's, like, you can obviously tell, like, she's super, like, you know, mentally ill, but mentally ill, but she had, like, a story. You know what I'm saying? Like, she yeah. was able to think of that, like, on the spot, basically. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Which, I mean, why would you not believe a woman that comes to you and says something like that, you know? Right, right. Like, you're like, oh, my goodness, are you okay? So... Obviously, the Andrews are pretty sympathetic, and they try to convince her that she doesn't need to fear because the police, um, she doesn't need to be afraid of the police because she had acted in self-defense of the rape. Miss Andrew gives Lori a pair of her daughter's pants to put on. While she was putting them on, Philip Andrew was able to pick up and pocket the Beretta. He suggests that Lori should call her family. She agrees, and she calls her mom, telling her that she had done something terrible and that the police were involved. Philip took the phone and explained Lori's story about the rape and the shooting, suggesting that Lori's mom come get her. But Lori's mom said she couldn't because she didn't have a car. So Mr. Andrew, the husband, arrives home, and they continue to argue with Lori, insisting she give up the second gun. Lori calls her mother again, and this time Mr. Andrew speaks with Lori's mom, asking her to persuade Lori to give up the gun. 
When Lori speaks with her mother, Mrs. Andrew leaves the house and alerts the police. Mr. Andrew tells Lori that he would not remain in the house if she did not put the gun and also left the house. Lori orders the son, Philip, to stay. Just before noon, seeing the police advancing on the house, she shoots Philip in the chest, but he manages to escape out the back door before collapsing and being rescued by the police and ambulance. Um, and here is where we're wrapping up, but it's not good. So with the house surrounded, Lori goes upstairs to the bedroom in the Andrews house and Lori's parents and her ex-husband are actually brought to the house. About 7 p.m., an assault team enters the house while Lori's dad attempted to get her attention with a bullhorn and the police find her body in the bedroom and she had shot herself in the mouth. What a yep. horrifying story. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty terrible. It's awful, like, from just the very beginning, honestly. Um, that, so, Olive, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know what I want to say. I'm speechless. Go ahead. So that's oh, how I okay. Felt listening. That's how I felt listening to the podcast um, about this case. I was like, I can't believe this is real. It's just such a sad story. Yeah, like it's on awful. every front. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not trying to, you know, make concessions for her in any way, but like, oh my gosh, it's just so. It's, oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm not being very eloquent, but I'm just. No, I mean I totally feel you. It's like it's no excuses, but like this is why mental health is so important and this is why oh my we, gosh, need more yeah. res- we need more resources we need more funding for it there's a lot of people that have potential to do things like this if they do not get the help that they need yeah and it's just there's just so many stories that we look at and it's just like oh yeah there's every behavior indicator there that they're going to be you know a killer and not not to say that everyone who you know, has mental health issues is going to escalate into being, you know, a murderer or anything like that. But it's just like that escalation of behavior just goes so unnoticed, I feel like. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. It's just like they shrug it off so many times until it gets to the point where it's like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have shrugged this off 10 times in a row and actually paid attention and we wouldn't be here now. And then the hard thing, too, is I have a friend who – um they have a family member who's definitely exhibits behaviors that are very concerning. Um, but the question is like, what do you do once they're, once they're an adult, like what, what do you do? You can, you know, get them Baker acted, but as soon as they get out, what's to say what their anger will drive them to do? Like, will that escalate their rage? You know? So it's just, yeah. everything around mental health and the way that, it's handled, I mean, it's just such a gray area, and it's so fluid, like, I mean, as much as I want to, like, look at her parents and her family and her friends and be like, why didn't you help her, I also look at my friend's situation, and I'm just like, what, I mean, what resources are there, you know, like, 
Yeah, no, I mean, especially back in this time period, even. I mean, now we think that we don't too, have resources. Yeah. Imagine back here. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's easy for me to say, yeah. like, why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? And that's just the mm-hmm. way, you know, I think. But, like, in reality, it is very possible where it's like, okay, we've tried. Like, she's not listening. Like, she won't she won't do anything that we're telling her to do. Like, it's it's definitely yeah. tough. Definitely I mean, tough would not want it, to be. It's just human nature, I feel like, to just be like, well, why didn't you help? You know, like, what, why right, didn't right. you do anything? And then, I don't know. It's just like, I don't know. That's just not human instinct to be like, well, you know, whatever. It's hard for them to, you know, it's our initial instinct to be like, why didn't you act in protection? You know, why didn't you? Right. Or this is what I would have done. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's no way for us to know, you know, until you're in it. Exactly. And I don't want to be in it. Gosh, no. Oh, my gosh. That would be so heartbreaking to watch, you know. Yeah. Especially your own kid. Um. Well, Gosh, Katie, this whole story, man. I know, it's really bad. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> I got you. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's, it's definitely crazy, especially if we hadn't heard it, yeah. Um, yeah. So the good news is is that all of but all of her victims but one actually recover from their injury, including the schoolgirl who was shot and suffered, and suffered severe internal injuries. The victims, school and the children and parents received extensive support to help them cope with the psychological after effects of the attacks. Parents and members of the community, yeah, yeah. Parents and members of the community devoted many years to gun control policy. Philip Andrew gave interviews about gun control from his hospital bed and later became active in local and state gun control organizations as the executive director of the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence he became a lawyer and then became an FBI agent. Whoa. Yeah, that's the son that she, like, made stay there and, like, shot him in the mm-hmm. chest. Wow. So, yeah, the Lori shootings also fueled the debate about criteria for committing mentally ill people to mental health facilities against their will. Some people favored the involuntary commitment of a person who is determined to be mentally ill and incapable of making informed decisions about treatment. Benjamin Wolf, who was on the staff council on the staff council for the ACLU of Illinois, didn't really like the idea. He kind of opposed it. He said it would be a shame if we cut back on the civil liberties of literally millions of mentally ill people because of the occasional bizarre incident. Yeah, that is. So a book called Murder of Innocence was written by Eric Zorn about the tragedy, and a film of the same name was based on it. In the film, Lori's name is changed to Lori Wade, and she's played by Valerie Bertinelli. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Oh, I'm sorry if I that. Who she's is on that? Hot in Cleveland. Oh, if you okay. That show. Yeah, yeah no, Valerie Bertinelli. She's the shorter yeah. one. So. Yeah, yeah, that's who plays Lori in the film. And Lori's mm-hmm. ex-husband, Russell, actually helped coach Valerie while she was preparing for the role. Oh, wow. That's crazy, that right? Tough. Right. <laughs> um, so some people blame Lori's family for defending and protecting her in spite of some of the signs of her deteriorating mental health. Investigations were hindered by Lori's parents' refusal to be interviewed by police or to provide access to her psychiatric, psychiatric records. Sorry, 
Um, the records were eventually obtained by court order. On the night of Lori's death, the, her parents only allowed a very brief search of her bedroom, after which they cleaned and removed potential evidence. The police were criticized for not sealing off her room as part of the crime scene. Um, so parents of the shooting victims sue Lori's family for damages. Further, further criticism was directed at Lori's psychiatrist for failing to identify or take action regarding the signs of her decreasing mental stability. At the time of her suicide, Lori was taking an unlicensed drug. Clomiprin? How do you say that? I'm not good with medicine. I don't take pills. Do you know what that is? Uh, what is it? Clomiprin? Clomiprin? <laughs> no yeah, I don't know either. So, But the effects of this drug were initially considered as contributing contributing factors to her mental well-being, but ultimately rolled out. Um, so two newspapers clippings are actually found in Lori's possession after death. One described a man who randomly killed two people in a public building. The other described a depressed young man who had attempted to commit suicide in the same way that Lori did. He survived and discovered that his brain injury had cured him of his OCD, which is just, like, so sad to me that, like, this was, like, if this is, like, the only thing on her mind, you know what I'm saying, for, like, all yeah. she did, it's, like, so sad. She maybe thought she was going to live and, like, be better, and it, oh, it breaks my heart. Um, so my last thing is that one theory of Lori's motive was that she targeted people who had disappointed her in some way, her ex-husband, her former sister-in-law, her ex-boyfriend, and his wife, the family who was moving away, and as well as some of her former friends and babysitting clients, because everybody that she mailed stuff to, you know, she went to the school, um, those are just all people that they theorized that maybe had, she felt had disappointed her in some way or another, or like wasn't there for her, and that's maybe why she did all this. But that is the wow. case of Lori Dan and it's yeah it's it's awful it's so awful yeah that story is really heartbreaking yeah super heartbreaking i love it when i we do cases that the other person hasn't heard about though yeah or like doesn't remember yeah like yeah it's like a little school lesson (laughs) yeah it's like i'm listening to a podcast myself right literally (laughs) like oh my goodness i love this girl's voice she sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, deep sigh. What's something positive that happened to you this weekend? Something positive. Um hmm. trying to think of one because there were a few actually that were really good. Um probably my favorite was that I started my Christmas shopping this week, which just makes me really happy. Nice. Exciting. Yeah, I ordered, you're on the game. I, yeah, I ordered my first Christmas present for someone else, and I'm so excited. Good job. It's only October 1st. Oh, I'm ready um, for Christmas season. Girl, me too. I'm so ready. Um, I guess my positive of the week would be is my dad's girlfriend, you know, Brenda. She texted me, like, I want to say, like, probably, like, three days ago, 
And she was like, hey. And I was like, what's up? And she was basically asking, like, what I was doing on, I think it's, like, October 10th. And I was, like, really confused by that because I was like, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm, like, so far away. I'm, like, 28 hours away from you. Um, But she is flying to California for something with her family, and she has a couple hours of a layover in Denver on October 10th. So I am going to take my bus 45 minutes to the airport, yeah, to go see her. So that's my high of the week. I haven't really, you know, been able to see anyone in my family in almost a year. So I'm excited. Yeah, that'll be (laughs) nice to get some some family love. Definitely. I told her I was going to probably start crying. I was like, I'm just going to start crying when I see you. Yeah. Oh, man. But I'm excited yeah. for you. That makes me really happy. Thank you. Yeah. Hey. I mean, I'm excited too. Well, I'm glad that we both had a positive too. Sometimes you just need to stay a positive after, especially those two cases. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's good to write down things that you're thankful for instead of focusing on these horrible, horrendous cases that we do. <laughs> I know, right? They're so heavy. <sighs> oh my gosh. Well, I know. We really appreciate you tuning in again to our seventh episode. We're almost to 10. That's crazy. I know. Well, we really do appreciate it. We should do like a giveaway or something for 10. We do. Yeah, we definitely should. Yeah, if you guys are listening to this, um, go ahead. Yeah, I've got some designs I've been working on as a meeting to send you. Oh, cool. Yeah, definitely send them to me. We should definitely do giveaways. So if you guys yeah, are listening to this um, on episode 10, we just figured it out on here. Um, we're going to do some sort of giveaway. Hannah and I will figure it out, um, how to do all the details of it and give it, give you the details in the next episode, I guess. But, yeah, please, guys, if you're listening to this, like, share this with your friends, anybody that you know who likes true crime. We really love our little audience that we're starting to grow, the feedback that we get just – the responses from you guys have been like pretty incredible so far and we're just getting started. So I'm super thankful for everybody listening. Um, let the ads play through cause we get paid. For <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I say, um, so much. I cut them out when I edit this. But so, <laughs> if you guys don't already follow our Instagram at, suspect podcast please go over there and follow that we post about anything that we're doing any new cases that we just uploaded you'll get all the details over on there and be able to keep up with us and also if you have any stories that you want to tell us that you know about anything crazy going on even if it's not a murder send it over to our email at suspectpodcast one at gmail.com and we'll read it on here or there's also a link in the episode description there's also a link in the episode description where you can click on it and just send us a voice memo that we can play on here. So, yeah, definitely check into that stuff. We'd love to hear back from you guys. Yeah. Um, I guess the last thing that I would have to say is that we also do have a Patreon link now if anybody is interested in, you know, helping us enhance our podcast, getting some better mics, maybe some better computers. Um, there is a link down there where you can do a monthly donation. You can do 99 cents, a dollar, I think maybe like five or 10. It doesn't have to be a lot at all. We're super thankful for anything that you guys choose to help us out with. And we do love you guys. Yeah. (laughs) We love you guys a lot. Thank you for being here. And until episode eight, we will, um, try to stay safe in these streets. (laughs) Yeah. 
for real. We don't want to get gangstered, Hannah. <laughs> oh my gosh, we <laughs> gotta do something with that. I know, right? <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, okay, man. anyway, guys, we love you guys. Until next time, bye. Bye.